Hello, and welcome to the Nostalgia Podcast. A podcast where we discuss the retelling or continuation of pop culture favorites as seen through a queer and feminist lens. My name is Eric Lefebri. And my name is Jessica Tercero. And this week, we are joined by a special guest, Kay Anderson of the Lost Spaces Podcast. And this week, we're talking about the boys in the band. Kay, how are you doing? I'm okay, thank you. <laughs> Obsessed. <laughs> oh, this is what's happened. I told you, as soon as we hit record, I'll be like, I have no idea what to say. <laughs> I, I am good. I'm good. good. How are you? So, I, I mean, I'm doing great. It's it's Saturday for both of us, but different ends of the Saturday, uh, which yeah, I think is very cool. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm on the different end. Yes. Yeah. So it's evening here in the UK. Where and I it's live. morning here in California, where we both are, which is, I just, I, what a world. Um, okay. So not to <laughs> dip into conversations about time, boys in the band. How are we feeling about this? Kay, what is your experience with the IP, with the play itself? Um, do you have a history with it? Uh, so I went through a period of being not obsessed with it, but I was going through a period of just watching lots of like historical queer films. And I watched it and the documentary that was made in 2011 around about that time. So about 10 years ago, not seen the remake, not seen it on a stage but had seen the original film and went around calling myself a pock-marked faggot for a while because of, <laughs> because of the line in the film. Yeah. Harold's famous, I mean, if anybody has like the most, I, to use his phrase, a turning of a nice like jab or a turn of a phrase or like a, just an absolute clapback, Harold is the one. He is so yes. good. Yes. Um, really. Jess, what is your history with Boys in the Band? So I have no history. I had no idea uh, that this film or this play ever even existed. It wasn't really on my radar. Um, being, you know, my life for so long was a straight woman. Um, <laughs> so, um, but yeah, no, I uh, I had not even heard of this. And then when, um, when it was suggested, I was like, oh, Oh my gosh. And the more that I dove into um, kind of the history of it and like the time frame, I just became obsessed. And this was an absolute treat. So I'm very excited to talk about it. Yeah, same. I mean, I've known about Boys in the Band. It has definitely been on my radar as something that I've wanted to watch, along with like the myriad of other like queer films that are a part of the like. Oh, the, the the homework, so to speak, when you're like a 19 year old queer kid and people are telling you like, oh, you have to watch this. You have to watch this. This was one of the films that was suggested to me time and time again, but I never I never gave it its time. And so this is my first watch um, of both the original and the, the new remake. And I'm really happy we're doing this because I am so elated by the overt gay story that this is like most queer media most gay media it'll like kind of tiptoe around the idea of like well they're together or whatever and it's just just like you nelly faggot <laughs> it's like just like <laughs> blah 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 i'm like oh this is a gay movie this is like a gay story I'm obsessed with this so yeah can I'm i just really, quick can I just quickly hop on that? Sorry. Yeah, 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 just, yeah. Of course. I, and I'm probably like completely ruining the structure of this episode. No, not at all. The the word Nelly 
just was like watching it and hearing them use, like I can hear them say fag, I can hear them say puff, I can hear them say everything. The word Nelly, because I have not heard it being used in such a long time, it had such a visceral reaction from me. Right? It's, it's, is one of those antiquated, like similarly like the, with the word queer, especially in the first one or in this like play, it has a different context, especially now because of its sort of reclamation and it's, it's more mm, ubiquitous mm. usage. But Nelly for sure. Like just how it's so it's so funny because it is that sort of just casual queer discourse of like, oh, you silly little queen, you Nelly little bit. And you're just like, oh, it's just it felt so earnest. It felt so like realized in the way that like, again, going at uh, Jess and I were just talking about this a little bit ago about like pronouns. Who cares? Like uh, she, he, they like it does not matter. Like, where is she? He's late. Like. It's so interchangeable and so fluid and the way that like everything about their conversations are just so like kind of languished and open and easy and but but simultaneously like both cutting and 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 emotionally almost like manipulative. It's so there's a lot. There's a lot to talk about and I'm like really excited <laughs> about it. Um I'm down to start talking about the first one. How do you feel? I'm good with that. Yeah. Okay. Okay, cool. are you ready? Yes, I am nodding. Yes. Perfect. Okay. <laughs> On the night of a one beloved Harold's birthday, Michael, our hostess with the mostest, is preparing to welcome a gathering of his most beloved queer comrades in celebrating a dear, dear friend. As Donald, Michael's friend and companion, arrives to set up for the soiree, Michael receives a tearful phone call from one of his old college friends, Alan, insisting they see each other to discuss something urgent. Fearing the worst is gay, Michael invites him over for a drink, truly hoping his friends aren't too femme in front of his long, straight chum. The party ensues. Hank and Larry, a handsome couple on the brink of collapse, arrive with Emery, a messy femme queen with a heart of cold, as Bernard, a warm, welcoming bookstore clerk and cowboy, and unexpected sex worker and gift from Emery trickle in. Oh no! Alan also arrived and saw the boys being femme and is now performing homophobia at them through violence and bullshitness. Ding dong! It's the birthday boy at Harold. There's lasagna, there's tension. Is Michael drinking again? Suddenly a storm sweeps the party inside just as the jovial and convivial ribbing begins teetering on bullying. In a vicious and vile spew of unmanaged trauma, a wounded and vengeful Michael forces Alan to stay and has them all play a game. They must call a love of their life and rack up the most points for the most vulnerable call. Ovs, this goes terribly wrong and is only exacerbated by more drinking and raw emotions. In a climactic emotional tizzy of racial epithets and incredulously harsh banter, the party collapses and Michael falls into an anxiety spell. Alan slams his closet door shut. Emery and Bernard seek refuge. Harold takes his present home for a birthday romp. And Harry, in parentheses Hank and Larry, makes up. Michael heads out for a midnight mass and decides to deal with the aftermath of his emotionally manipulative tornado tomorrow. This film was brought to you by BetterHelp. <laughs> because everyone needs to go to fucking therapy. Oh my God. Okay. So let's just dive in. Boys in the Band. This play is, I mean, this this film rather was a play is a film. Um, It is such a fantastic look into these lives of people exhibiting this like raw vulnerability of queerness, but simultaneously trying to perform and sort of like trauma dump on each other in this way that's supposed to be seen as like comedic, but it's not like 
they're doing it on per- like I don't know. To me, it feels so honest in the way that it's done because this feels so real and like this feels so human amongst this group of people. Like, I mean. Emery being like using all of these racial epithets and then the whole Bernard sequence where he's like, he can do it and you can't Michael and fuck you and whatever. And then like Michael trying to perform straight, like all of this wildness. I first and foremost, I really enjoyed this. I think it's a fantastic movie. I think it's a fantastic look at all of these performative aspects of queerness. I mean, you have the relationship dynamic of, wanting to be open but wanting to not be open and then you have this like alan figure who's teetering on the line of is this about him coming out but ultimately in the end it's like maybe he wasn't maybe he was just calling a friend and the what if of it all with the you know it's just there's a lot it's so rife with like intensity it's good it's a good Mm. movie where do we want to start on it I do think that it's important for context of our listeners to understand that this story takes place before Stonewall. Yes. Um, so you can file that in that section of history. But also, I think uh, you were talking about the honesty of these characters and kind of the um, their situations and where they're coming from. And I think a lot of that was um, there's. Uh, I didn't watch the documentary that you were talking about, Kay, but there is like kind of a like little mini documentary on Netflix about the new one that um, Mm -hmm. interviews the um, the writer of the play. And um, he was talking about um, how every character was based on somebody that he knew. And like Michael is based on himself. Um, Harold is based off of this person that was his best friend and that he loved, who was also the choreographer for um, like a lot of Hollywood films. Yeah. Yeah. And um, (laughs) he, uh, funny girl, he was the person that danced opposite Barbara Streisand. And he taught Natalie Wood how to do all of her dances in uh, West Side Story. So it's like that's I I like connecting things. But yeah, so it's it's really interesting when you're uh, like and I think that's why it feels so honest is just because it's coming from a really honest place. Yeah. What I think is really so when I went into watching it the first time, I had heard all of the negative opinions about the stereotypes that were depicted within the film. And I think what is almost as interesting as the film itself and the text itself is the time at which it existed so when it came out on off off broadway or off broadway i don't really know how it works when it first came out like it was like 1968 and people were celebrating the piece and it was really exciting and fresh and like oh this is giving voice to these queer men and then the stonewall uprising happened and by the time the film came out in 1970 everyone not everyone sorry i'm i'm overgeneralizing no a lot of people were like no this is not how we should be depicted we sh- we don't have like negative lives we're not all filled with depression and we're not all like we don't all hate ourselves this is terrible and that completely killed the success of the film which i just think is fascinating but also like when i went into watching it i was thinking about this like oh they're all like stereotypes and hackneyed and like ridiculous caricatures of what a gay man is but that is not at all what I took away from after watching I was like oh actually I know all of these people literally I felt the exact same way I mean granted I didn't know that uh history as far as like 
people saying the sort of hackneyed stereotype or sort of tropic effect for the for the film. So going into it, I was just like, I know nothing, essentially. Let's go. And I could not tell you. Like, I could point to each one of those characters and be like, that was this person in my life when I was 19. That was this person in my life when I was 25. That is exactly... I've been at that party. I've been at that party so many times. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, I've... Oh, I you know, need to get better friends. Well, this was when I was like really sad in my early 20s. Uh, I've been to that party. And it is like, especially when it's exacerbated by alcohol, you see these different sides of insecurity just wretch out of like people who seem so like assured and confident. And then this moment of even just like a, a wince of vulnerability and suddenly it's like trauma dumping on this massive scale and I feel like the way that these characters really build that tension by like ribbing a little bit or jabbing or like poking fun or or for the sake of humor, using that humor as a way to be a little bit like, ooh, like I'm going to get him on this, you know, just like fun with your friends. And it really is such a it feels like a such an earnest look into that sort of character that into that sort of a group dynamic. And I mean, it is interesting to hear also that like that two year span where it's no, we want to re we want to reframe the image of queerness of, of, of gay masculinity. We want to like, we're not sad and we're not bad and we're not, we're not mm. bad people. We're good. And like, let's show that. Yeah. And I mean, it's so interesting that, you know, at that time there would have been so few depictions of gay life. And so every single time that you were showing gay life it had to like tick so many boxes for so many people that it just became like a prison within which you were you were sitting and nowadays it's like you can you know not do whatever you want but like there's there are enough depictions and there are enough opportunities for people to see themselves that you don't have to take as much care or you're not going to be as vilified if you get one or two things wrong exactly there's there's a there's a privilege in being able to perform that authenticity now in a way that like mm. well if i'm gay i have to be the most perfect version of a gay man possible i have to be the most the most uh model astute version of this thing so that way the public embraces me and sees that like we're not all bad we're good upstanding people yeah, which i think or i'm not like other gays i'm not like other gays Ugh. exactly the model and, minority yeah, a model minority concept. And it really just dips its toe into that like assimilation into heteronormativity mm-hmm. and arguably white supremacy and a lot of those aspects too. Because again, how does that intersectional identity of like blackness or otherness when it comes to non-whiteness in these contexts? Because for a lot of these people, that sort of passing idea of like being the astute model minority for a queer person was only accessible because of their whiteness, right? Like, I can yeah. only be this and perform this because I'm white. Whereas somebody like in this play, Bernard, he does not have that privilege. And it's so interesting to watch his character sort of dissolve when he makes this phone call because it's like, even though he didn't really say anything because of the family dynamic of his family and this person's family and how they're so intermingled, even just like the wince or the the whisper of queerness in this way of what if he's gay um look how devastating it was for him like what if they find out he didn't say anything even like he really didn't say anything but it's just this could destroy his life and he doesn't have the luxury of privilege in this case right uh, it's interesting you say that because i do feel as though that was a bit of an overreaction 
<laughs> you think so? <laughs> yeah, I was a bit like, because, because precisely because of what you've just said, like he didn't actually say anything on the phone. Yeah. He just like was like, you know, he, he backed out of it. He chickened out. And then he just went into a tailspin. Well, that's because I, I like it because it's, it almost is this, he's obviously in his head, but mm. there's the level of like, why would I call? Why would I call to check on him? Why would they think that I'm calling? Like, you know, that overreaction of when you're in the closet, like, oh, sure. Like, oh, they, they must know. Was, they must know. They, yeah. they must know. They must know. Yeah. I was looking at this person for too long. Fuck. They know I think he's cute. Shit. Okay. How do I back out of this? Um, No, sorry. That wasn't like, you know what I mean? Just the, the unmitigated spiraling of anxiety like just the the what if what if what if like mm-hmm. I, this can't happen this will ruin me and so i loved that because of how earnest it felt i did i think in context of like these other queer characters feel a bit like an overreaction but the more i sat with it the more i was like no like if i was closeted i've been, i've 100 percent been there i've been this character doing something moderately queer and then instantly being like my life is over i'm done it's over mm-hmm. i'm never gonna exist I, at yeah. least for me. Yeah, yes. And I'm sure that there are times if I scratched my head long enough, I can think of when I've done that as well. But that would have been like in my early 20s or in my teens. That's true. And he's in his 30s, arguably. Yeah. But there is also that for us, especially now, because also as as some as people who have grown up in the generation that we have and have also come out at fairly early ages, I'm assuming. I came out mm. when I was... 18 i think so living in the time that we do i do think there is that like there is what much more of an acceptability to it so understanding that this is supposed to be like 1968 yeah uh, where there is still this just like even in your own home a stranger can like literally just assault you and call you a faggot and punch you in the face and everyone will be like it's fine he was just scared like there's such a pass to it because it's such an acceptable way to react or respond to queerness um, in that moment, well, I was like, oh, yeah, I've I been there, Bernard. <laughs> part of Bernard's reaction, I think, might be um, kind of that closeness that this person is and has been to him in proximity to his whole life, right? He's yeah. known this family his whole life. His mom still works for the family. So, I mean, maybe there is... Um, because I also did think that it was kind of an overreaction, but what you're saying, Eric, kind of makes me rethink it where it's like, He was calling this person that sees his mom every day, right? That like he's maybe not out to his family and maybe there's like some some closer things to that and to that trauma. Also, he was drunk. Everybody's drunk and uh, our emotions are wild (laughs) when we're out there. Um, But you said something that was um, that was really interesting. And I think when we look at the depiction of gay and queer characters over like, you know, throughout cinema um, and when they were allowed to be open and out right like historically those characters have generally either been for for laughs right like when I feel like when queer characters started becoming more normalized is when we saw them in like sitcoms and things I mean they were that comedic relief to kind of like associate like oh they're so silly oh well they they're great to have around that sort of thing but like something that we've like even in those instances like we've never really gotten away from showing queer trauma and like the trauma of coming out or of you know just like what it is to be queer in these spaces and I feel like that's kind of where they where 
queer characters have been allowed to exist where queer is the very first thing that you know about this character and everything else is secondary. So now we are getting more um, like, you know, in the past 10 years, we've been getting a lot more mainstream versions of characters that are a character and they just happen to be queer, you know, where that Mm, is their entire character coding. But it's really interesting because as somebody that's always grown up in cities, right? Like I grew up Southern California, right next to LA. I'm now in, in the Bay Area. So like to me, it, or to younger me, I will say like, oh, well, everybody's queer. It's fine. Everybody's around. It's great. But then like um, something that they were talking about in that documentary, which was like, oh, yeah, like, you know, it's really easy to think about when you live in these cities like, oh, we're doing so much better. Everything is so much better. Everything is great when you're surrounded by like, you know, more acceptance. But like this movie, even the 2020 version can feel like, oh, well, this this is a historical piece, obviously. This is like, you know, 50 years ago. It's not like that anymore. But somebody in Alabama, somebody in a place where, you know, queer people are still actively being targeted and legislation is still telling them that they don't have a right to exist, where coming out literally is a death sentence for some people or where they will be kicked out of their house and everything. Like in that documentary, they were saying like some people were like, you know, coming up to them and saying, this is still my story. Like this, this could happen yesterday Um, which is really interesting that based on your geographic location and kind of the the world that you exist in like this can be historical or present day and I think that um, I I always struggle with whether or not my level of self-hatred is just as a result of being a human being or if it's because I'm queer and I think like it's so hard to disentangle right but There's none of those characters in the film, either film, because they're essentially the same, where I'm like, oh, that would never happen now. Like, I think that all the levels of self-hatred, all the levels of internalized homophobia, like, they exist in the community. It's not, I don't think it's gone away, really, even for people that are the most liberated. Like, they're still, like, you know, I mean, anything that happens to you when you're a kid that that's just going to fuck you up for life, right? Oh, truly. And I do think, yeah, you're so right. It hasn't gone away. I mean, for some, it's gotten easier, but for some, it hasn't. And I think in general, too, like, everyone... And, and I feel like the queer experience is also kind of an ageless journey because there's no, like, time for it. Some people come, come out in their 50s or 60s. Some people come out when they're 15. Like, it's not specific or indicative of anything apart from, like, when somebody is ready. But that sort of self-hatred and that, like... That constant battle, especially in a society that constantly tells you, like, everything is surrounded by heteronormativity in general. So that, like, that lack of seeing yourself as a part of the bigger picture is an interesting way of existing. And I mean, like, I don't... Do you watch... And I know this is a bit of a tangent, but, like, have you watched the show The Other Two? Have you watched the show? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Do you remember the episode where... Oh, and there's a link because Thingy from the 2020 version is in the other two. That, you know, you know Thingy, right? Thingy. Um, (laughs) You know, in the second series when uh, there's, they go on, is it Pam? The mum. They go on the mum's talk show and pretend to be yes. the, the dad oh, and yes. son. Tuck, Tuck, uh, <laughs> yes, Tuck, yeah, Tuck yeah. Watson. Tuck Watson. Yes, Tuck. he's what in it. What kind of okay. a name is Tuck, by the way? I mean, it's kind of hot. I want him to kiss me on the mouth <laughs> because Jesus. Also, casting, 
if he didn't look exactly like that other actor, that was amazing. Oh, anyways, okay. So remember in the first season, at the end of the episode with My Brother's Gay, the song, they're at the bar, the song is playing, and the older brother goes to the bar and he runs into one of his old classmates. And he's like, oh, I didn't know you were gay. And he's like, thank you. And he's like, wait, what? Wait, no, sorry. He's like, no, 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 I didn't mean he's like, no, it's it's okay. Like, I'll see you later. That level of like, I couldn't tell you were gay as a positive, mm-hmm. as this sort of casual degradation of feminist and this expectation to assimilate into a sort of masculine presenting, hetero presenting character in society as just like a casual throwaway like it's just because that i feel like for a lot of people is very much a part of it right it's like oh yeah i suck dick but like i'm not i don't go to the bars or like what you know what i mean like there's that i don't listen to madonna yeah yes um yeah like i'm not again not like other gays like that Mm -hmm. whole conversation i bring that up as an example because it is a it was so funny and i was like fuck that's so real it's just like such a, a realistic it's just it felt very real and i feel like this movie these characters are kind of falling into those same tropes where like emery who is the most femme this like absolute warm and bubbly femme queen just like flouncing from room to room and existing in so many different performances of space of joke of humor of everything arguably the most energetic character here is because of that feminist, constantly belittled, constantly rejected by his closest friends, really. Like, the whole conversation about promiscuity, and they're like, well, he's the most promiscuous. Look at this little queen over here. And then they, like, say it's like, well, not by choice. It's like, they're so mean. Like, Jesus. This is just a, a constant degradation of, like, who can outmask one another and the most femme loses mm. um, just as the game of queerness, uh, which... I mean, at least in my early 20s, I absolutely experienced. I mean, I, I'm glad that there's more of a conversation around, like, the no-femme discourse, just in terms of, like, in terms of the feminist equated to badness conversation. I'm happy that that's, like, at least being discussed. But even then, again, that has everything to do with location and who you're chatting with. Either way, in this first movie, I really struggled with Emery, speaking of Emery, just in terms of the way that they exist counter to Bernard because of like all the racial epithets and the way that they like actively dig, like they get in the cab, there's the Chinese laundry joke. All of the racial noddings are kind of played for laughs with the exception of when Michael has his sort of monologue tirade where he is like just super nasty. But Emery really kind of just like digs in to Bernard at like every turn with like why don't you eat a piece of watermelon why don't you this why don't you that like it feels so I know they kind of address it in the movie about like I let him do that to me I do that to myself but you can't do that to me that whole conversation Mm-mm. um I struggled with the Emery character f- because it just felt so like why you know what I mean for somebody who is this like kind of warm bubbly like very earnest and sweet and a little bit like like the fun sister of the family. Like it just seemed like such an out of character thing to kind of constantly fall back into. Ah, I don't know. I don't know if I think it felt out of character. I can see how someone who is the butt of everyone's joke and who is used to being the punching bag gets in 
a shot every now and then and like tries to keep up with people. So I can understand it from that perspective, why he would want to be like, see, I can be a bitch too. Yeah. And I guess the only thing that he doesn't have or that is different between him and Bernard, and and again, in just a hierarchical sense based in this time and in a white Mm supremacist state, mm -hmm. is that he is a white presenting person and Bernard isn't. So I can Mm -hmm. see that, okay, I get that. Just using that as the only ammunition against somebody to like get a good jab in. Yeah, I I find like, so the whole Emery character is so important to this story. Yeah. But I find like my, all of my own internalized homophobia comes out when watching Emery. And I'm not sure, like I see, I have a thing about loud people just in general, like people who would just like suck up all the energy out of a room. (laughs) And oftentimes the most flamboyant person is also the loudest person. And so I I find it hard to disentangle that sometimes. Like, am I like put off by you because you're just so loud or because you're flamboyant? Anyway, that's a beside beside the point. But like the fact that so many queer rights, so much of what we talk about now has been one on the back of these flamboyant loud people means that like I just really need to check myself every time I I feel like a certain way but also just the amount of shit that he puts up with like from everyone else the amount of shit that he has to put up with and like he kind of has no choice or he must feel as though he has no choice because these are the only people that accept him even though they're not accepting him like it just must be such a head fuck oh absolutely yeah like everybody else can kind of pass as straight to a certain degree but Emery's the one character that doesn't have that capability mm. Mm. um Eric, we were also talking, um, so the cast for the 1970s version um, is the original cast from the play, and the the writer often credits um, those nine men with being just incredibly brave to do the play, so anytime that he like talks about it, he's just like, it's all because of them, because they had that courage to, to do that, but even within the cast, um, three of the actors were not queer, and one of them was Emery. Yeah. Which I was so surprised by. So oh, Cliff I didn't Go- know that. Ah. So Cliff Gorman, who played Emery, uh, was famously straight, and I guess also famously famously straight. Yeah, <laughs> but but in a way where like I guess that any previous works that he had done, he played a really good sort of like butch tough guy and like a very masculine character. So when they're like, "Wait, Cliff Gorman's gonna play Emery? Are you sure?" And he did, and and this was a conversation about, like, that Jess and I just kind of touched on briefly. It's a well-portrayed character, especially in the high femme, just a realized depiction Mm -hmm. of, like, this queer person. But, like, how hard did that lean into stereotype, knowing the context of a straight, ideated character? Like, a straight person created this idea and this performance. How much of that is more of a stereotype than like an earnest digging into queer identity, right? It it I think it's harder because in the movie, like, I I buy it. I get Emery. I know that person. Like, she's great. She's loud. She's big. Like, she does it. I know her. But knowing that like a straight man is this per like, I'm just so taken by it. 
I, I'm just not taken by it. I'm just interested in like what that means because it mm. has a different meaning knowing its context. Um, I know that in that documentary, they were also saying that I guess Cliff Gorman used to get people would walk up to him on the street with his wife and they'd be like, we know you're a faggot. Like, who are you even trying to prove? Like, we know you're gay sort of thing. And he's like, uh, no, <laughs> that was a character. I'm very straight. <laughs> um, which is which so just interesting. Famously maybe it's straight. Famously straight. <laughs> as, as we've said, that actually... Not, not um, just a regular straight. On all the playbills yeah. that he was ever in, in the bio, it says famously straight theater actor. Is, <laughs> is, is how, really? It's how they bill him for everything. Um, yeah, I just, I just think that's so interesting. Like, that is so interesting. And I'm really glad I didn't know before watching the film because I would have been like, oh, yeah, he's just, that, this is just too much. This is ridiculous. Literally, <laughs> I, I think I, think I would have felt the same way. I would have, knowing that that's a straight man, I would have been like, oh, this is terrible. Like, what an <laughs> asshole. Like, this is insane. But because there was an assumption there, too, where I was like, oh, if this is the same actors from the play, like, the, the the lives of gay men and I feel like they're all doing a very good job at like depicting these characters. I was like, if they're in the theater in the sixties, I'm assuming they're all gay. <laughs> Not to be stereotypical, but there is that level of like, I, I'm sure they're doing a great job at this. And so I, I feel like that would have absolutely changed my reaction to Emery, because mm. like caricature a little. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like but uh, I don't, yeah, I, I, yeah. So I have not come to this conversation thinking that he was a caricature. He is the one who is at most risk of becoming a caricature. Yes, certainly. Like if you read the script, yeah, but yeah. Hats off to what's his name, Cliff, uh, Cliff, Cliff Gorman. Yeah, yeah. Like yeah. hats off because he did a good job. He really did. I kind of want to talk about Michael a little bit. Let's okay. talk about our, Michael, our our lead, our main character arguably apart from Herod. and so the thing about michael and sorry i'm gonna actually bring up donald in order to talk about michael. oh do it do it do it do it do it go, go, go. i did not get that they were a couple i so, didn't either but i i wrote companion in the in the introduction because the more i spent time with it Part of me wonders, and and this is one of the things about the play too, is like there's a lot of unanswered questions like what was inscripted on the frame? Was Alan actually gay? Mm, like mm. a lot of this stuff, they really just leave unanswered because, I mean, that's life. Sometimes things aren't cut and dry. And a part of me wonders if their relationship is also one of those things because they seem very friendly. They've obviously like been very close for some time. But the couple of the lines that he keeps being like, am I going to see you next Saturday? Like, unless you have other plans. I'm wondering He bought him a toothbrush. Like, he bought him a tooth. But part yeah. of me wonders if he's he's sort of like a paid concubine or like a, a paid uh, Oh, really? Oh, I just thought worker. it was... I just thought uh, it was I'm, someone who didn't live in the city who like came and crashed at his house. Maybe. And he That's was what, just like... Yeah. Because, I mean, Michael doesn't have any money to pay him. Like, he can't pay him on a credit card. <laughs> <laughs> you know? he, I mean, he might. Or I he mean, might like, buy him things on credit, right? Like, but it, as, kept, it kept talking about how broke Michael was. Yeah. They did. But, but I'm wondering if, like, why is Donald, like, this man is so toxic and sad. And I understand when you love somebody, like, especially in this queer context, like, there is a level of, like, well, I'm going to stick by you and I'm, I'll be here and I, I will be here to help you. We all have our shit. But even at the end, when he just like stays there and he's like, 
I'm going to go to midnight mass. And there's kind of an assumption of like, uh, Donald's going to wait there for the couple upstairs and maybe do some cleaning, whatever. And he's like, well, I see you next Saturday. It feels a little, it feels different than just like a friendship. Well, and, and here I, I know there's a line that they hooked up before. Right. Mm -hmm. And I feel like they kind of like explained it a little bit, but like when, Donald lived in the city. Donald, like one of the first people that he met was Michael. So I feel like maybe there's that sort of a connection and maybe, yeah, I, I got the feeling that he stays at his house, but like, he's also like, here, look, don't use my toothbrush. You have your own now. Like this is a regular thing. We're establishing that. And he's clearly like fucking his analyst, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> but like, and he's like kind of in denial about that, but he comes up every Saturday for this and then just so happens to see his friend. Like, and in the conversation too, where he's like, Donald's like, hey, I'm here. And Michael's like, what the fuck are you doing here? You're early. Like, well, I'm like- that. That's kind of why it felt a little bit more like an upstanding date that they have. Like, hey, I'm not ready for you. You're, oh, you're usually here on Saturdays. And that's why the conversation with the analyst where there's the assumptive like, oh, they're fucking, that they don't kind of really want to talk about because this isn't time for him to talk about his other clients. This is time for them to be together. So there's kind of like the eye roll like, oh, yeah, I bet, I bet he shrunk your head. He's like, yeah, I, he did. Great. And then um, <laughs> what else are we doing today? Like there's a, there is that like quick dismissal of it, which just all of those little bits dipped me into that waters. Again, it's so unexplained and so unclear, but that's what it felt like to me. I'll which keep is why that in I mind when it. I watch it again. So like maybe to see if I pick up on anything. It just felt a little that way. Yeah. 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 And I, I got that there was intimacy. I guess I just didn't think. Yeah. I, I just then read an article saying they were boyfriends and I was like, what? Huh? What? <laughs> yeah. Because because it is it just seems like like in the way that a lot of gay groups are very incestuous. Mm. Uh, like I even when they're arguing, it's like he's had him fuck i've had him yeah we've all <laughs> fucked like who cares like mm. you know what i mean there is there is that level of it, which i think is very silly but yeah exactly <laughs> the tan lines on donald too i'm sorry i do have to bring that up because like that was like whenever like male bodies are presented you maybe only see the butt uh but like when female bodies are presented it's like fucking here's everything <laughs> yeah. right so like i'm always zeroed in whenever there's like a naked male on oh. uh, or a, a male presenting character because yeah. i'm like okay cool are you gonna show anything do it you coward and uh we just I've... see um we just see his butt but like those tan lines were like yeah. serious I mean, I love that we see full cock in the remake. Yes. That was my favorite. I was favorite. very happy with that. I love full cock on TV as a general. Big fan. Um, <laughs> but yeah. I don't know. If it's flaccid, I'm just like, nah, who cares? Really? <laughs> yeah. Oh, my gosh. Okay. I love soft wieners. I think they're so cool. I'm really into them. I think they're fucking hot. Like, it's just so casual and so, like, easy going i don't know that's my thing <laughs> just like oh like a na like a naked man standing with just like completely unaroused dick big fan i just if for some reason it's very hot to me oh yes. okay all right well anyway so <laughs> you, you wanted to talk about michael and now we're talking like so so, so let's go so back to michael did. let's go back to michael so because he's largely like the lead everything centers around him is in his apartment um he's the one who gets everything together he's the tie for alan 
uh, even though it is Harold's birthday party, he is the he's the pivotal character. He's the one at the center of everything. Um, his story, I think, is so fascinating because of his relapse, because of his performative straightness, because of like all of these moments where he's trying to control everything. He's very clearly somebody who relies and needs people to perceive him a certain way. That's why we get all of this like credit card debt when it comes to like Hermes and these sweaters and these scarves and like, babe, I'm rich. Like I'm walking downtown in Manhattan and I got money when in fact he doesn't. So it's all about performance. He changed all... three times, three times in yeah. this movie. Three times. So, and so it's all about appearance. What, so you're saying about... that's not enough? You're saying that's too much? He, he uh, needs well, to... I was what saying say? like <laughs> three is like his minimum. His minimum is he's going to change three times. Like yeah. I was like, eh, I the ascots, everything. I was like into it. We're gonna need a seventh. Go We're gonna need a seventh costume change. I yeah, mean... I mean, if we if we want to be realistic, come on. Three. Especially if is that, it's is that yeah. enough. Especially if it's your house, <laughs> sweetie. You have your entire totally. wardrobe upstairs. Totally. It's cake time. We're putting on a different sweater. Oh, presents, new pants. Oh wait, oh, we're all drunk and we want to dress up. Let's fucking go to my closet. Like yeah. I, let's yeah, let's yeah. rock and roll. It'll be fun. So. His dip, I, you see him just unravel slowly throughout. And what a what a fantastic performance by this actor. Like, as he's confronted with these two worlds, I mean, what a great way to put this character in the most undesirable situation. Like, his straight side with this straight friend who is straight. Big straight. Big emphasis on straight, right? These two worlds well, well it's, it's well, ambiguous. Like, ambiguous. Mm-hmm. But <laughs> in the sense that he's performing for this friend and wants to be still perceived as straight by this friend, mm-hmm. regardless mm-hmm. of like the, is he gay? Is he coming out to me tonight? Is that what he's here? Is that what he's crying? Um, regardless of that, there is still the like, hey, can you guys not be so fucking queer in front of my friend? Like, he's going to get here. I need you guys to stop dancing. I need this, whatever. Him and walking Donald's... In and- Donald says, like, don't you tell me how to act. Like, he's yeah. like, fuck you. Like, I love... like he's like, I, I know what's at stake here. I know what to do. Like, you don't need to keep telling me how to do this. Like, what? who the fuck are you? Like, yeah. and that's one of the few moments that we really see him kind of, like, push back against Michael. Like, was just, like, just feeling absolutely insulted in that moment. Oh, yeah. I loved how Michael was talking about his sobriety in this. Where, like... His discussion about like drinking in general, where he's like, yeah, you just get up and have this and then you're hungover and then you do that and blah, blah, blah. I'm getting off the carousel, that whole conversation. I mean, it's obviously a very real thing, especially also me as a sober person of like two and a half years. I absolutely get that and recognize and sort of like see that in that moment. But then also the moment he like grabs the bottle and is like, fuck it, I'm having a drink. (laughs) Like, you see, this is too much. How I kind of took that was he was talking about drinking as like a crutch to like be himself. And like everybody kind of knows that that's how it is. Like there's the line of like, well, the right night, the right wine, you know, and yeah. everybody's curious. Right. So they, they talk about that, but he, um, in this moment, I felt like that was kind of him trying to be like, I'm ready to be myself fully and to be myself in any situation. I don't need a drink. I'm like kind of like thinking he's ready to do that or like uh, like elevated himself on that level. And then the second that something happens or something goes wrong, he goes straight back to it because, no, he's not ready for that because like he's still at the end of the day does not like himself and is ashamed of himself and his friends and yeah. this whole situation. I mean, the way that that, that self-hatred unfolds in this where you just 
he he like he almost transforms physically into this like snake spewing venom at each of his friends with that phone like it's your turn and points and yes and ooh he got him like way to go he like turns into this 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 like just cartoonish villain almost and even his friends are like fucking stop like i don't want to play this he's like we're gonna play the fucking game and he's uh, not playing the game himself he's not playing he recuses it himself he, from that entirely and that's my but favorite still, part yeah. of harold is when harold's like he doesn't want to play because he's never loved anybody <laughs> and you're like ah, no! <laughs> like like just the perfect gotcha moment um i guess i didn't really i i just wanted to bring up michael because i do like i think he's just a great character in this where you see the unraveling and then the anxiety spell at the end where he just he just collapses like what have i done why have i done this and the sort of realization of the the trauma he's caused on all mm. of his friends is just it's an interesting ending cuz like even even at the end like his last line being like my dying father who died in my arms said i don't get it i never have or i think something along those lines yeah where it's like damn you just have so much fucking trauma like that's the last thing you're leaving with is is like your dad died in your arms and essentially said like i don't think you're a person bye <laughs> like oh fuck like that's oh is that a- is that how you interpreted it i interpreted that line as i don't get life Oh, that's how I interpreted it too. But it works both ways, I think. Yeah, yeah. Even a straight, even a straight man doesn't understand anything in life. So why can he tell you that your life is bad or different or you know, like he can't, he can't judge you for that? But then also what you're saying, where it's like he he doesn't understand his son. That I really like that. That's a cool interpretation. Well, that oh, that's so interesting. Because I because to me, I was like, oh yeah, it's very clear. Like part of his trauma and part of all of this stuff is. A lack of acceptance and i mean having your parent die in your arms by itself but having your parent die in your arms and them essentially saying like i never got it like i never got you and i i'll never i never will like i don't get you that is devastating that is like that to me it's like the bow on his performance because it is like this man sucks. This man is bad. This man is toxic. He's done all these bad things. And then suddenly you gain this insight of like this insanely traumatic moment that is passed off so casually in conversation that you're like, whoa. It doesn't excuse anything, but it at least changes the understanding of why he did certain things because of this like just he's literally just he exists in this cesspool of trauma like that's it that's his life and he's trying so hard to pretend like he doesn't have that or that he doesn't experience these things because he's an upstanding gentleman he is he is just a well-to-do society boy and it's like no you've got shit to handle and part of that is this hatred for yourself and i mean i'm sure it's exacerbated by the fact that the his dad's last words were like i don't see you as a person i don't get you bye uh, <laughs> and you're like Fuck. i don't know that uh, was my yeah pick. see so so yeah so mine was like life is futile there's like there is no purpose in life see ya i'm off and that's that's how <laughs> i thought the film ended i like that too because that feels like to me that feels nice because it kind of is like oh yeah life is huh that's life you know what i mean like i guess that's life and then <laughs> blam. um it feels very it feels like almost kind in a way 
It's like, ah, oh, what a life. <laughs> and then dead. <laughs> Whereas, the, yeah, the other one just feels so pointed and like just sad mm-hmm. because it is like the line itself isn't like, I hate you. It's just, I never got you. Like, and it's not yeah. even like an apology for it. It's just like, well, I don't. Yeah, because indifference is much worse than hatred, right? Literally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The indifference of it, like, you know what? I never got you and I never will. And then it's just death. And you're like, now he has to carry that with him for the rest of his life. Cool. Cool, 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 cool. <laughs> Damn. So whilst we're talking about Michael, there's a few things that you've like, this conversation has sparked in me. And this is more directed to you, Eric. Have you ever been asked to tone down your gayness? Yeah. Yes. And how does that feel? It's okay. Oh my God. I really hope she doesn't listen to this, but I really don't give a shit actually. Um, this happened very recently actually (gasps) oh wow i went home to visit my parents for my mom's birthday and um there's a new set of friends that my parents have and i brought this like really it's like this gorgeous shirt it was really nice it was kind of colorful and everything um my mom made me wear something else but in such a passive aggressive way and it was the most boring, basic shirt. And I know, I know. And these new friends are like semi-religious, even though they're like cool. Um, I know. <laughs> Should you I, say that you did air quotes then? Because people. Oh can't, yeah, sorry. People can't cool. See. The cool <laughs> emphasis was in italics. I did a little air quotes. Um, I know it was like a "Hey, tone it down" thing, which is so surprising because my parents aren't like that. Usually, mm. um, part of like their love for me has to do with how creative and big and fun and often femme I am. And it felt like such a stab in the throat. Like, Oh, you don't want me there. Like you do not want me to go. And so I went wearing this shit fucking costume and, uh, I decided to not really be present. Like mm-hmm. you, you're mm-hmm. asking me in this way because I wore it, and I was like, "What do you think?" And she's like, "Yeah, it's very you." Which I was like, "Okay, cool." Oh. And then the follow up to that was she brought a different shirt. And she said, "What do you think about this shirt?" So it's very passive aggressive. I'm like, "What do you mean? What do I think about it?" Like, do you want me to change? She's like, "Well, I just think I was like, are you asking me to change my shirt?" She's like, "Yes." I was like, "Why?" She's like, "Because I don't think it's appropriate." I was like, "What's inappropriate about it?" <laughs> she's like well no it's just like a it's like a fancy place it was not a fancy place at all it was yes that is such Mm. that is it's such a like it's currently i'm still like kind of sitting with that in a way that felt so strange because it's one of those things where like i thought that with my family we were far past this like years past Mm -hmm. this and suddenly this small moment of like you need to not be as gay today you need to not be as femme. You need to not be as queer tonight. Mm. Um, it was it, loud and clear. And again, it's something so small and casual. Yeah, but to me, yeah. in that moment, it was very clear. Like, we don't want your gay version there. And I was like, well, cool. Yeah, but it's like, it's small and casual, but also fundamental. Fundamental, like it's, yeah. It's and that's the like, insidiousness of often these like mm, microaggressions where it's like, mm, that is clear. Like you're not saying like, hey, don't be a faggot at dinner. <laughs> it's not like they're being this over, you know what I mean? But it is very clear. Like I got the message. I know what you're trying to say. Cool. And then, mm. okay. And before we move on, fucking I get there and my older brother, 
I if any, if my family listens to this, call me and let's talk about it. Cause fuck off. Cause I am ready to talk about this. Um, I get there and my older brother's wearing a fucking flannel jacket in this supposed like fancy restaurant, like a hunting like hooded hoodie that's made of flannel, like not even a button up shirt. And I'm like, I'm sorry. Wasn't this like a fancy place? Isn't that why I had to change my fucking shirt? And he's here wearing a fucking sweater. My God. Anyways, shout out to my family. Okay. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm so sorry for ripping that bandaid off. No, please. I've been wanting to like open that door for a little bit. So thank you. But yeah, I have a lot of feelings about that. It happens. It is the most insidious, shitty feeling in the world. Mm. It's terrible. It is so like demoralizing. Um, yeah. So yeah. like, and, and again, that's part of why a lot of this resonates with me too, because there is that level of like performance, like, hey, be less you. Yeah, can you yeah. can you not exist in this way here for a little bit? And it's like, fuck you. What do you mean? Like, either I'm here or I'm not. What do you want from me? Like, yeah. You know. And that and that is why the character of Michael is so great in that, like, yeah. he is he he has to control everything it's all yes. about control and so he is controlling the actions of his friends in this moment without really realizing just like how cancerous that approach is and and i think just the moment he realizes at the end is so like his whole world spins like everything comes to a head he's like what have i done and he just where you're like yeah you were like cancerous is the perfect way to describe that behavior it is this insidious like just spewing toxic sludge of nastiness that he oozes in these moments of vulnerability and it's like whoa what a character oof yeah oof oof indeed (laughs) um okay Okay. let's dip let's dip into the new one (laughs) On the night of a one beloved Harold's birthday, Michael, our hostess with the mostest, is preparing to welcome a gathering of his most beloved queer comrades and celebrating a dear, dear friend. As Donald, Michael's friend and companion, arrives to help set up the soiree, Michael receives a tearful phone call from one of his old college friends, Alan, insisting they see each other to discuss something urgent. Fearing the worst is gay, Michael invites him over for a drink, truly hoping his friends aren't too femme in front of his longtime straight chum. The party ensues. Hank and Larry, a handsome couple on the brink of collapse, arrive with Emery, a messy femme queen with a heart of gold, as Bernard, a warm and welcoming bookstore clerk, and Cowboy, an unexpected sex worker and gift from Emery, trickle in. Oh no! Alan arrived and also saw the boys being femme and is now performing homophobia at them through violence and bullishness. Ding dong! It's the birthday boy, Harold. There's lasagna. There's tension. Is Michael drinking again? Ugh. Suddenly, a storm sweeps the party inside just as the jovial and convivial ribbing begins teetering on bullying. In a vicious and vile spew of unmanaged trauma, a wounded and vengeful Michael forces Alan to stay and has them all play a game. They must call a love of their life and rack up the most points for the most vulnerable call. Obs, this goes terribly wrong and is only exacerbated by drinking and raw emotions. In a climactic emotional tizzy of racial epithets and incredulously harsh banter the party collapses and michael falls into an anxiety spell alan slams his closet door shut emery and bernard seek refuge harold takes his present home for a birthday romp and harry hank and larry makes up 
Michael heads out for a midnight mass and decides to deal with the aftermath of his emotionally manipulative tornado tomorrow. This film was brought to you by BetterHelp. So I also want to clarify that we are not sponsored by BetterHelp. I thought it would be funny because it is a therapy app and I wanted to throw that in as like a haha people are need to go to therapy but again not sponsored also if you want to pay us money pay us money well yeah pay I mean money. if you're out there better help and you I want know to better if you're listening here we are we're discussing um Eric's Venmo is elafebri oh yeah just straight up Venmo me now. <laughs> just send me money directly to the source We've already promoted to you, so I mean, like, really, you're just... Um, We're just waiting just for the check. Completing the transaction. The Thank you. Yeah, truly. <laughs> Thank you so much. Uh, better help. We love you. Uh, when you give us the money, we'll love you. Um, perfect. So... We're kind of just like falling into the the same conversation we had before because again, it's pretty much the same film with with a few exceptions and cast and ha- what have you. Same dialogue. Before we do, before yes. we do, can I just say, picking up on the point you've just made about same dialogue, there is a line in both films that I think is very apt to this conversation, and that is two's company, three's a menage. <laughs> This is true. <laughs> Three's a menage. Oh my god, that was so. <laughs> What's a menage? <laughs> Two's company. Three's a menage. Oh, <laughs> could not be more apt. Thank you. Um, it's so true. Two's company and three's a menage, and here we are. Um, <laughs> a trois of us. Uh, but okay, so with like me approaching this assignment it's not an assignment sorry i mean it's a little homework it's It's a little homeworky but me approaching this i was very aware that my bias would be towards the original because i'm always like well of course the original's better yeah (laughs) and then i was like and you know ryan murphy he's just gonna fuck it up he's just gonna make it some kind of ryan murphy type thing i was so ready for that too and then (laughs) and then i then I watched it, and it was basically the exact same film. And I was like, oh, "Why didn't they even try?" Yeah, I, I, <laughs> I, especially with Ryan Murphy as an executive producer, I did think that he was going to absolutely wreck the shit out of it. like not like I thought he was going to do something so bombastic and like silly in this way. That's like, get it? It's camp, and you're like, are you sure? Um, I thought he was going to do that with this. And again, it's pretty much a cut and dry. We're watching the same play. I mean, again, large exceptions being some of the the racial jokes were pulled. Some of the dialogue was kind of reconfigured. I think they gave Cowboy a few more lines. They're just like little, little itty bitty mm-hmm. stuff. And I think some of the references, they kind of switched up on us too. But overall, it's like the exact same script. Yeah, and basically the the main difference, I think, is just the tonal shifts are more apparent. Um, uh, Like I said, when um, Michael goes for the drink, that's more apparent. So there's these things that before were um, just kind of existed in the film where they called much more attention to this, which I think was for maybe a more modern audience or a, a more... A wider audience, yeah. you know, because it's it's very intentional with like, this is how you're supposed to feel in this moment. And this is what you need to pay attention to. So it's kind of, it felt like it was kind of holding your hand a little bit more. A little bit. Yeah. I mean, I, first and foremost, I liked the portrayal of uh, Harry, Hank and Larry because yes. these two men are a couple in real life, which I think is are fantastic. They? Yeah. Oh, 
Oh, I didn't um, know that. Okay. They've been they've been longtime partners, Tuck Watkins and Andrew Wannells. I think they've been dating for like a they've been dating for quite a long time. And I love that they are regularly in uh shows together. Like, do you guys watch Black Monday? Mm-mm. They have an affair together in the show Black Monday. And like they're they're regularly in stuff together where they're like both gay and both in love. And you're like, you know what? This is like actually really cute. Because they're like together in real life. I don't know. I love that. Um uh, that sounds awful. <laughs> <laughs> I I love it. I'm like, you guys are so cute. And I yeah. I think they're both sluts too, which we're obsessed with. I liked the depiction of these characters in this. Um some of the line readings, like I liked them in this maybe as much or if not more than the other actors but apart from them and emery i think everything else didn't work for me just in terms of the characters like zachary quinto as harold didn't buy it unfortunately okay so i felt i felt like um watching the first one not knowing who was in the second one right uh the original harold i was like the dude from Big Bang Theory, like, based his whole life, his whole persona on this guy here. Cause, like, the way that he talks in his cadence, right? Yeah. And I was like, this is fucking him. This is Sheldon, who's given nerds a bad name. Like, you know, yeah. like, that that whole show is problematic. But then seeing him in this one, not playing that character, fucked me up so bad. I was like, yeah. okay. Like, Okay, because I also, I was like, okay, well, but Zachary Quinto isn't Jewish either, right? So he's supposed to be playing a Jewish person, which is because that is like essential to Harold's character too. So I was yes. like, okay, was it because, was it because, is he Jewish? And I didn't know. So I looked it up and it was like, is Zachary Quinto Jewish? And like the Google search, you know how usually it gives you like a paragraph or something? It just said, no. No. <laughs> <laughs> Nope. So I was like, okay, why did you do that? Why? Yeah, because it, like, I feel like Sheldon, sh- I'm just going to call him, I feel like him carrying the movie like really took me out of it because I'm so used to seeing him as that character. And I feel like he, if he had played Harold, I feel like that would have at least made more sense to me because just his style of acting and his line delivery and everything is so, would also be a tribute to the person, um, I forget his name, but first played Harold. So like, to me, that just yeah. fucked me up. See, I never, like, I've never watched The Big Bang Theory, so, like, it didn't, he didn't mean anything to me in that role. I guess I was just thinking that, like, oh, all of these actors have been in Ryan Murphy productions before. He just, like, yeah. has, has them in his Rolodex. He's pulling his Wait, gaggle of gays. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hey, his hey. gay Rolodex. <laughs> He's actually not even texting them. He's just finding them on Grinder and being like, hey, Queen, check out the script. <laughs> like, hey, do you want to work on this? Like, oh, for sure. <laughs> which, which sorry. is like, I, I sorry. Kinda, it's kind of nice, right? T- like... t- sorry, Tuck Watkins is on Scruff. He's not on Grinder. Sorry, let me just, <laughs> I'll, let me clear the air on that. My bad. Oh, wait. Okay. Well, let's be, uh, well, I feel like, I feel like most Al- of them would be Alan on would be on Scruff. Alan would be on Scruff. And you know what? He's so cute. Like, for be- like he is such a little daddy, and I'm, like, really into him. Well, Alan, <laughs> in, the, in the 2020 version. In the, in the 2020 version, yeah. I can't. Oh, I need to look him up. Because he's got, like, these, like, really soft, sad eyes. And, like, oh, my God. Um, I mean, granted, fuck him completely, this character, like, for being this homophobic piece so, of shit. Uh, but, but, like, okay, but hang on. We just need to, like, dig into this a bit more. So you, like, sad... Sad dad, like people that Sad. you can take under your wing and like nurture. Well, kind is this of, what it kind is? of. Like, there's a level of like in sadness 
to me, like, especially with men, there's like a softness and that softness is very attractive to me, especially when it's coming from somebody who looks like a literal dad or like a father. I'm like, oh, obviously that's my own daddy issues, like for sure. Like that's not even a conversation, <laughs> but I'm just like really attracted to that. Well, see, I feel as though the Alan in the 1970 version was like sadder, like he had more of that aura. But to me, it didn't. But he was I, less daddy. Okay. He was less daddy. Okay. And I think ultimately that's what it comes down to. He was less <laughs> daddy. It doesn't matter how sad you are. You've got to be a daddy. Got to be First daddy. and foremost. Yeah. All right. Yes. Cool. I'm 100%. Daddy, daddy. We're going to put that on a shirt for you. <laughs> Thank you so much. Okay. Um, I, yeah, I didn't, I didn't really buy most of these. Char- I mean, I, the, the characters that I did buy that mm. I really kind of leaned into, I loved this cowboy. I thought this cowboy was very. Yes. Like, I thought he was exactly the same actor. Oh, right. Oh, okay. <laughs> I was like, like, you look exactly the same, except how, your hair isn't as tall. Like, how did you get this guy? Like, yeah. what? <laughs> yeah. So, I, I mean, I liked his delivery in this. I thought it was, like, very cool. Like, the aloofness of the first one worked, but then this one being, like, aloof uh-huh. in a more confident way worked. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, like, different kind of interpretations of this character. I was really into this one. Emery, played by Robin de Jesus... I loved because to me, this Emery felt, I felt the warmth from him and the sort of needed confidence to be such a high femme in the society as it is. And they did pull out a lot of the, like the racial tithings or like the little uh, racial jabs that he has towards Bernard out of this, um, which just made for me made him a much more likable character. And I think that charm, it takes away the grit for sure, because I know that the grit of the first one is like really intentional in the way that it's like, we're all messy. And like we talked about before, his dynamic with Bernard specifically, how it is like the low rung on the on the call sheet or what have you, they're kind of just jabbing at each other. Taking that out though, it does provide this context for warmth and nurture that makes me, I guess, resonate with, Emery more so here. I did also like the apology when Bernard was like, this is how this feels. It always feels awful, but like, and he's like bearing his soul to everybody. And Emery, like when he looks at him, he's like, I am so sorry. This, I had no idea. I will never do this again to you. It felt my biggest note with this one is like, oh, they actually like each other. (laughs) Like in the first one, there's, there's a level where I'm like, some, I mean, obviously they're close and obviously it's kind of like, this is my survival group. These are my friends. This is my family. There are moments where I'm like, does anybody here even like each other? I feel like everyone is just like so secretly rooting for each other's demise, but nobody's talking about it. Whereas in this one, some of that is still present, especially within Michael, but you see some true, genuine moments of like, oh, wow, they love each other. Like in the first one, the moment that I recognize that as one of the only ones was the the present from Michael to Harold with the frame mm-hmm. where he like he reads it and they're like, what does it say? And then he just takes a beat and it's like something personal or something special. Like he says something and Harold looks at Michael, even though they've just got into kind of like a tit for tat moment. The way that Harold looks at Michael in that first one, you're like, yeah, like they mean a lot to each other no matter what is happening here. 
Yeah. Uh, and the way and, Michael looks at him too. And it's the way like Michael looks before, at Harold. Before it was just kind of like, oh, well, this is my present. And you can see like uh, Michael just kind of like hanging on his reaction. Like everything, uh, like the whole night rides on like nothing else exists in this moment. Um, so I thought that was that was cool. Yeah. And I think like that moment worked in both, but it just in the first one, that's one of the only moments that I like kind of clock as like an earn like like this level of deep earnestness um when it comes to like love and friendship and companionship in in a way that feels very organic whereas in the new one even though it is a little bit forced there is a lot more of that warmth present which just to me as a viewer i buy it harder in the, this one that they are a group of friends who like earnestly do care about each other despite the fights despite the bickering despite the the spew of 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 toxicness on one another in this one it did it did feel like they're gonna get through this like they're there for one another in a way that the first one just felt like ooh, these these queers hate each other <laughs> i felt like in the first one they were all just kind of stuck with each other because like of. again like for the moment and it was like actually really dangerous to be queer like publicly yeah. i got the vibe that you stick with and around the people that you know you know that's what I read. So then mm. this one, it felt more, yeah, it felt a little bit more earnest in, in terms of their relationships and like their relationships as a group and also like the coupling of each person. Like I felt like Emery and Bernard were closer. I felt um, the depth for Harry, uh, I'm sorry, Harry, I kept calling them that. So I was like so stoked that you put it in the, yeah. um, <laughs> in the intros, but like, I really liked the depth that we got for both of those characters. And I liked that, um, like that we started off with the context with more context for kind of like, we started off with, um, with their tension. Right. And it was very yes. clear and apparent why that tension was there. And, um, that we were able to see more of Hank's struggle, trying to fit in and trying to like find his place and then also being confronted with Alan. Like, I, I think those relationships worked a little bit better for me. Hmm. How are you feeling, Kay? Oh, disagree mm. with us, please. I don't know. I don't know if I disagree necessarily. I think like for me, so I'm the kind of person who is more interested in stories about friendship than I am about romantic relationships. And mm -hmm. so for me, like this is all so fascinating because no one can hurt you as much as the casual cruelty from a friend. And so from that perspective, the first one I didn't really care that it didn't, it seemed like they didn't like each other because there were those small clues that they had this real intimacy. So I didn't, I didn't really kind of need that big show of like camaraderie and friendship and like we're in this together. And then, so I, I guess maybe I just wasn't looking at the second one through any kind of lens where I wanted them to like each other because I want, I wanted that tension. I don't know. Yeah, mm -hmm. I I get that as well. Because I mean, granted, the base text is it's rooted in that tension. It's rooted in in these these really like rough character studies, right? So like, I just personally resonated with it more, just in the context of like, you got to give me a little bit more good than this overwhelming bad that I'm seeing. That doesn't mm. necessarily mean that like I because I, I love the first one. I think it's really fantastic, and I love the way that it's done. But if we're putting one and one together, the difference in that I find 
fascinating and such an interesting way to use the same text, but in a new way, right? Because it is the, it's the same words, but you're just portraying it differently and in this way, creating more of a warmth with the same base text. Uh, see, okay, so in my notes, I had written that there was less tension in the remake. Like yes. I did not, I did not feel as tense and I did not feel as like bought into the drama at the end. And I, I had been attributing that to the cutaways that they were using. So they were doing like flashbacks of like, yeah. this is happening now, this is happening now. And so I, I was saying that that was taking me out of the, fantasy oh i don't i didn't say that i didn't just say, say it that, but, i love it like, okay. i love it it was taking me out of the fantasy yeah and um okay maybe it, <laughs> maybe it was because maybe it was because they like liked each other more <laughs> it's like it, the stakes stakes on as high who gives a shit and that's and that is kind <laughs> of i i that seems like fairly inarguable too like i agree completely because like the stakes just weren't as high because of the way that they resolve that warmth within the friendship. Because again, in the first one, it is just like, you could cut that shit with a knife. Like, mm -hmm. do they even like each other? Like, Jesus Christ, they're just destroying each other at every moment, any possible time to just be like, you're a dumb piece of shit and I hate you. It's like, I'm going to say it and I'm going to do it. And I hope, I hope this stings you silly little gay, like, Ooh, it's just so it's it's rough, which makes for a better drama. And I think I think you're also right just in terms of the the cutaways did change the dynamic of the story because again, it is written like a play. So in the first one, it is very much like we're not leaving the space. Like the times that we leave the space are at the beginning when we're setting up the conversation. You're buying the lobster. You're at the shop. You're at your job. You're getting the books. You're getting ready. We're seeing these sort of vignettes of life in the big city in '68. We land back at the house. We don't leave the house until the door closes at the end and he leaves. That's just it. Apart from cutting away to say a phone call, maybe. Mm -hmm. But even then, the phone call is still a part of the house setting. It's happening in that house. So we are locked in that place. And the storm, we're not leaving. Nobody's leaving, as he says. Um, that, that sort of bottling of the tension also heightens that tension because of it has nowhere to go. We have nowhere to go as the audience. We can't escape this. We know we're stuck here with these fucked up people and we have to just be here until it ends. Shit. And we have to we have to watch the literal storm inside of the house while it's yes. raging outside, right? Exactly. Michael like is and, just thunderous. And whilst we're at it, Someone left the cake out in the rain. They did, and they left the lasagna. Yeah, I was. So I was sad. like, that lasagna <laughs> no, okay. looks so no. good. Okay, but I'm using the lyric from MacArthur Park. You get that right? No. Oh shit! All right. Well, Wait, someone I'm, listening I'm will get this. Who is that? So, so there is a song called MacArthur Park, and the chorus is "Someone left the cake out in the rain." Oh. I'm gonna look this up. Immediately I mean, it's, okay. I'm just like, I'm, what? Uh, I'm so it's a sorry. Summer. That, uh, it's just, uh, I'm so I sorry. I feel ashamed that in, as a musician right now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so sorry that in this context, you were the cake and we were the ones leaving you out in the rain. Just, um, I mean, your listeners are going to be listening to this and just like, those dumb fucks. I they're going to throw their it. phones. They're going to be screaming. <laughs> are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> that classic song, you just, oh, yeah. you fools. <laughs> um, yes. So it, I mean, I'm going okay, to I'm gonna, I'm gonna write a song called Lasagna Out in the Rain. Speaking of tension. Now. 
Oh, speaking of tension. <laughs> Lasa- uh, no, what but, rhymes but it with just lasagna? lasagna. Lasagna. My mama. No. Uh, Bolog- Bologna. 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 <laughs> <laughs> I just mispronounced Bologna. Okay. Back to the tension. Yeah. So I just liked, I mean, granted, I would have liked a little bit more of the tension in this one. But again, that comes with the territory of them not liking each other. I thought mm. the cutaways were like an interesting way to add a little bit of texture. Um, I don't think they worked great, but I still, I mean, again. But you got to see soft pain. So. I got to see soft yes. pain. Yes. Yeah. I, so- I got to see buoyant cock in the pool several times. And we got to see a little bathhouse action, which iconic. Oh, do you guys want to talk about the big punch? Like the big climactic moment oh, with yeah. Alan? Yeah. So that, I mean, the- I feel like Alan in general, I think if we're going to talk about that, we need to kind of go back to whenever he like inserts himself into this. Um, yeah. Because I, I think his dialogue is largely the same in both. And there's something where he comes in and immediately like any queer joy that was there, they were all dancing and having a wonderful time fucking ends. Right. It Sucks like, it, yeah. so in the, in the presence of straightness, queerness is not allowed to exist or, or to be good. So then like when he's like offended and he goes back up to the room with Michael, right. He makes a, a comment about, saying Hank is handsome, right? And then saying he likes everyone except Emery, right? Um, And calls him, he starts saying some really awful things about him. And he's like, oh, well, you know, I'm so sorry. Because he, like, I feel like he caught himself being like, oh, well, Hank. Oh, but like Emery, I mean, like, uh, no, I mean, like, he's like, he's like real bad and like real, uh, you know, I mean, sorry, it's just what he is. And he's like, you know me, like, I don't care as long as you don't force your ways on anyone or doing anything uh, in public right yeah and but and then he, that old like, adage <laughs> he digs deeper into that where he's like but i mean you got to admit right he's trying to like um which like and that whole line where he said uh as long as you don't force your ways on anyone or aren't doing it in public because this space he was not invited here he was not allowed he forced himself in here into this conversation and into this area and then he's like well i mean don't do this in public or in front of anybody don't i mean don't force your way on anybody it's like by being here in this space in a place that you were not wanted and you self-invited yourself you are doing exactly what you're telling other people not to do you know and you're Mm. and then there's the conversation about like when he's like oh well hank is the straight one so i get him right and i think hank is a really interesting character but like he's um he's fucking shook when he sees that like oh well you're married and you're you have kids and you're also gay and you're leaving your wife like well i mean it's not a woman that's like i mean if it was a woman that's normal what the fuck are you talking about this is my favorite part of the character because it is like for the first time he's seeing himself represented in the queer community yes and that excitement the excitement that he feels the moment that he realizes like he knows the space he's not playing any games around hank it's very clear he's gay they're all gay so the moments that they're like low-key flirting this resonance of like big air quotes normal straight guy but they can still like suck dicks later like that whole joy that he's starting to feel and i just love it because again in that room when he does say like hank is actually very handsome there is sort of the peeking out of the closet a little bit like hey the just tiptoeing and saying hey maybe but then again he catches himself and it's like oh but like 
but I'm not like a fag. I'm not like a fairy. I'm not like this. And also, actually, you know what? Fuck gay people. (laughs) He like doubles down real quick. And then uh, Michael's like, um, okay, this is like really fun for me. Uh, And he's like, yeah, okay, fuck it. Fine. What are we? What am I? What do you think is happening here? Who do you think we are? And it just, Alan lives in this fantasy of what is quote unquote normal. So much so like he buoys himself to Hank. Like in that moment, he's like, okay, Hank, let's go. Like that is so out of nowhere. Like they're at this party. He just met this man and he's like, I'm leaving Hank. Come with me. And you're like, what? Mm. You don't know this person. Like what an interesting line because it is so clear. Like he has attached himself to this man because of the, the visibility of it. Like I see myself in him. That is like me. Maybe we can be together in this and moment of like. And I'm going to save him from these go- people. But yeah, and there's like that moment of desperation. It feels like with him, like trying to like, maybe this is the night that I come out. Maybe this is what's happening, and maybe he's the one who's going to help me do it. And then that's when it's like, no, stop, like, stop being this coward about it. Tell him, tell him you're not roommates. Like, break this facade of heteronormativity break like he alan is not saying it alan knows it but he doesn't want to say it because when you say it it's real so for him he's still like in that fantasy and so it's just like yeah tell him it's like yeah we're lovers and he's like no no (laughs) like don't say it out loud (laughs) no like i can we can smooch later but like don't say it (laughs) like you know what i mean like i just the moment he says it it's like this whole the whole world, this illusion of himself is shattered because like he's not out. So this one person he is identifying with so strongly at like literally every point is like, I'm just like you and I'm gay. And he's like, no, that can't be me. (gasps) And it just like doubles down on that panic that he has for, for coming out. And I mean, this is all after the hit and all that stuff. So I kind of don't really give a shit about Alan as a character because I'm just like, oh, yeah, 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 totally. The, the the person that is most interesting to me within that dynamic is Hank because the, yes. the allure that he feels towards this straight man, like, oh, he thinks I'm passing and I'm acceptable. I need to maintain this facade for him. Yes. And and like yes. all of the tension that that causes. And even though he's pissing off the person, the one person there that he loves, he is alienating and pissing off. It doesn't matter because he's getting the approval from the heterosexual in the room. Yes. He's, he's doing the like, oh, thank you for calling me straight. Like, oh yeah, I'm a beer drinker. Like all of these, these just like weird, silly little stereotypes. He's not dancing. He's not performing any of this. He is... He is fucking swimming in the validation of hetero mm, heteronormativity mm, here. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that works really well to like show his struggle to change his lifestyle from like after being a straight person, you know, a straight passing person for so long, right? Even though he's always had these kind of like feelings, like he lived that life and had a wife and had kids and all of that. And he was still married when the like he started experimenting, right? And then two years ago, he left his wife to be with Larry, right? So this is not new by any stretch of the imagination for for him. And it's still taking him, like, I mean, how many years? And he's still, he's still not where he wants to be. And he's still kind of like pining for the, uh, the approval of straight people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think uh, it's really interesting that the writer 
openly is just like, yeah, I'm Michael. This is written after who I am or who I was at this point in my life. Because like, I don't know, I feel like me personally, I would be because like, he was 30 when he wrote this, right? He was 31. And so like, this is like peak like that time. And so I was like, oh my God, like if this, if I wrote something about me and my life being this messy and like the next day was like, cool, here's a thing about my life. Also, I'm problematic and awful and trash, like self-sabotage, like the whole, like, I mean, like there's a bunch of different ways you can do that. But like me now, like I would have a hard time owning up to that until years later. (laughs) Yeah, true. Well, there is a, I mean, because it depends how, how you're looking at that character, right? Like, he might have, maybe I can't justify this, but like he might have been looking at it as like this kind of cynical, worldly person that was standing outside of the friend group and not recognizing that actually he was a douchebag. Sure. Maybe he wrote it after he realized the the harm and like what a problematic asshole that he was being. So that that is true. Which could be therapeutic for him, right? Getting that getting that version of himself on a page and out of his own mind could have been a form of therapy. And a big old apology to all of his friends that he did all of that to. Be like, oh no no no, I know I was bad. Look, I get it. I'm different now, but I get it. (laughs) Um I will also say I mean, overall, I I do I did like how they did this, but yeah, I don't know how how are we feeling? Do we have more to say? Yeah, I d- just I guess the ending is far more hopeful in the 2020 version than it is in the 1970 version, and yes, I hate it. <laughs> I agree. I know. I didn't like it either. I know that like there is sort of a, a call to be like, oh, like sad queer trope of like hopelessness, death, and just lifelong depression. Cool. But in this, I did not need these little vignettes. Like, Mm-mm. why the fuck is he running down the alleyway? That it means nothing uh, to me. Uh, like, yeah. go also, away. The, the performance felt, um, it was felt not as impactful. Like, I mean, like, the, the first... <laughs> was... uh, the first movie, that performance is incredible. Just seeing him yeah. just break the fuck down in like this very, like I was like in it. I was like, this is it. This is this. But like this one, I was like, I don't know. It felt so watered down and it felt it so disingenuous. Because the closing of a door is such a good detail. It's such a good final moment. Like the finality of a door closing, both in allegory and in earnest actuality in the play, like it means so many different things and it's the perfect way to close a story because it's a story that's taking place in this room. He's leaving the room, the door closes, play over, boom. So cutting to all of these little moments, it's like, oh, you're cheapening the intention of this. Like, why are we seeing him at church? That offers nothing to us. Why are we seeing him in the alleyway running? That offers nothing to us. Is he running away from problems? I don't care because we don't need to know this. Like seeing Alan again, why? Like, I don't want to see him and drinking at Bernard a bar. And then Bernard and Emery in the coffee shop. And I'm like, okay. <gasps> yeah. Like, that was, like, yeah. I, we don't need that. Like, is it just like a this one moment and then life goes on? It's like, well, we know life goes on. Like, you don't. The first just one cheap, felt more cyclical. Like, yeah. the first one was like, okay, like, we just went through this whole big traumatic thing. And then he asked Donald, will I see you tomorrow? Right. And Harold says, I will call you tomorrow. Right. Or, yeah. And so, like, there's this, um, there's this understanding that 
it's not a good ending, but it just continues. Like they're continuing this cycle. This is just how these people exist, right? And in the yeah. the other one, it's just it felt it's, it, it it wasn't it's bad. as meaningful. It wasn't. No, I really I also hated it. It was a it was not a good. I ending. guess yeah. I just like forever. Like the most problematic for me was Michael's because it was so stereotypical. Like I'm going to church. I'm resolving my sins now. I'm running into the night. Like oh fuck off. Yeah, that's the Ryan Murphy jumped out <laughs> <laughs> in those sequences. It's like, it it's took so two in- hours, but he got there. Oh my god! Literally, <laughs> Ugh. yeah. We see his little stamp. Like I'm gonna come in and I'm change the ending. Boop. <laughs> what if he ran into the night like wild gays do <laughs> like shut up ryan murphy go away it's so boring i'm so bored of you um yeah i have i have questions for the both yes. of you perfect if i were to thrust a telephone into your face and say you have to call the one person that you love and tell them that you love them and give some arbitrary point system around it who would you ring <gasps> Ooh. I thought you were going to say, Ooh. would you do it? And I oh, was like, same. if I was drunk and 18, absolutely. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, and messy. Um, oh I'm going to have a, I'm going to have a very boring answer. It would be Eric. Yeah. Aww. Because there's uh, like, there literally is no other person who I would call for this. Like, oh, okay. I just have no one. idea who I would drink. Cause, cause, <laughs> yeah. Cause I like, I've, I haven't had that many like loves of my life. I've had a lot of like lovely, passionate sex with strangers, <laughs> but no, nobody that I've been like, I'm in love with. Like, you know what I mean? Cause that's like a uh-huh. different thing. And so Eric's the one person that I would be like, Oh yeah, for sure. He's the one I'd call with, with like without hesitation. I'd be like, yeah, I'll get fucking 10 points right now. Call me. <laughs> like, what? Let's go. <laughs> like, I win the game. <laughs> I feel like my answer would also be really boring because it is the same where I would oh, call yeah. my oh, husband. As I, I think I mentioned uh, to you, uh, <laughs> um, Kay, where like I recently have been like, oh, yeah, you know what? I think I am bisexual. And I think like this is, you know, and I, I just don't really talk about it because I haven't like. Uh, as a woman that is married to a straight man in a straight passing relationship and this I'm like well you know I don't I don't know how much I can like actually think or explore any of that but like really like when I think about like my my husband being my person it is because really we've done just a lot of trauma bonding together (laughs) and um through my experiences growing up and and like my journey especially over the past 10 years, I can't think of anybody else that has been there so fundamentally for me in like, sure, in terms of like friendship and things like that, like I do have those, but like as a a lover, as um, somebody that has seen all of me and met me at my literal worst. And also like, I mean, I have been in mostly straight relationships, but like the only... <laughs> The only man that has not like really um, been emotionally manipulative or, um, you know, that has not sexually assaulted me. Like, I mean, these are things that like, I don't know, there's there's a lot to it. But like my my husband being the one person that really showed me what it means to love and be loved and love unconditionally. He was the one that saw me in that moment. I was like, no, you are wonderful and you are worth so much. And like, he just, he helped me to see the good things about myself be- just by being a good person to me. 
This is this is this <laughs> so, is all far boring. too emotionally healthy. I'm sorry. <laughs> I know. This I'm is not <laughs> the kind of response I wanted. <laughs> you wanted messy, chaotic queerness. <laughs> Wait, so so you were saying you wouldn't know who you would call? No, I don't know who. Like, if it was like, yeah, if it was that kind of situation where, you know, Michael, who's my douchebag friend, who is like, you need to rank someone, and I'm gonna give you points, and like, I don't even know what the prize is. Did he say what the prize was? That might raise the stakes a bit you know what might be a better a funner answer for for eric and i in our not current day us but like 21 us like early 20s oh us, who would be the one person to call then because that's when i was hella messy Ooh, ew, <laughs> yeah Ooh, i don't think i had anybody at that time i don't th- i don't know i don't no, know i was now so, that i was now so that lo- i'm like i was so lonely Okay, well, so if someone, but like if someone just rang you out of the blue and was like, hey, on a Saturday night, and was like, hey, it's me, I love you. Yeah. How would you respond? I would ask <laughs> if they're okay and I would like <laughs> earnestly give them a response and be like, be like if it's been someone, years. Is someone paying you to ring me and say yeah. this? <laughs> pr- like, are you pranking me? Are you recording this? Like, this seems so out of character and strange. I would, yeah, I would. I would ask a lot of questions. Yeah, I would. Um, I would say, okay, thank you. Uh, <laughs> um, I'm very flattered, and I feel like this has happened to me. Maybe because nobody fucking calls each other anymore, right? It's all text messaging and it's all DMing and stuff. But like, I feel like this has happened to me a couple times, and every time I'm like well that's great or like you know (laughs) back when we used to know each other i mean like maybe that could have been a thing but you know like uh like and i always i've struggled being in that moment because i'm like uh, like yeah like what do i why why are you coming and saying this to me now why (laughs) it's hard (laughs) it's very difficult to like navigate that in a way that's like wait what is this what is happening yeah um what about you okay so who would you call i don't know is there anyone that i have that unresolved i don't yeah i'm just gonna like wimp out of answering that if someone rang me though i would just be like Okay, bye. Yeah. <laughs> you would be the dentist. You would be the dental, the oh, Emery's, yeah, hang up. Emery's yeah. love. Yeah. Oh, I don't think I'd be as harsh as hanging up. I'd pretend that I was having signal problems. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Okay, so we made it back from 1970s New York. Um, Woo! First, let's talk about Boys in the Band, 1970. Eric, who was that movie for? The gays. It's for the gays. It is a gay movie who is for the gays and gay people living their gay little lives in New York City. Gay. Okay, who do you think (laughs) it was for? Yeah, definitely anyone who's a mo. I wonder if it was also to see whether heterosexuals would be like up for that kind of thing yeah right it seems like such it's such an earnestly gay story it's like it is so gay mm-hmm. yeah uh, kind of but like it, testing the waters to see yeah if yeah jess what do you th- who do you think it was for 
I think you're both right. I think that's really good. And I think that the inclusion of Alan in the first film was maybe part of that testing the waters, but definitely in the second one, I feel like his inclusion was, and maybe this is getting into the next question, but like his inclusion was absolutely so straight people can maybe project a little bit onto him or like, uh, like make something more, I don't know. It felt like Alan had more of a presence in the second one and his feelings had more space than they did in the first one. That's what I think. Um, <laughs> did you like it, Eric? I really liked it. I'll probably watch it again. I really enjoyed it. I think it's a fantastic story. Tension again, so good. I think it's a great, like it's a great, I would love to see this on stage. Like what a gorgeous stage play this would be. Like, uh, yeah, I really liked it. What do you think, Kay? Did you like it? Yes, I really liked it. I think that because because it was so faithful, I mean, I, I, I'm assuming it was so faithful to the play. Yeah. It felt, <laughs> I haven't seen the play, but it felt just like a play. So there were some yeah. bits where I was a bit like, oh, can you just shut up? Like, because they were doing the monologue thing. But yeah. despite that, I, I loved it. Yeah. Jess, what do you think? A hundred percent. I had no expectations going to this and I was so fucking thrilled to watch this because i i mean we talk about um i mean most of the um uh, films that we review are all centering straight white men um and yeah. how there's very little films that even when they say that they are centering the woman or centering the person of color or centering queerness they are still centering the the straight white man and so for this to be so like right out of the get go just so fucking unapologetically gay and yeah. like this um wonderful nuanced representation of like so many different types of of queer men and so many like you know that none of them are the same and none of them fit into a like this little box they are all so complex with their own motivations and their own their own personalities and their own wants and desires and so it was really nice to not just see like this which i think is credited with being the first um major like production that centers open queerness but also to see it be such a wonderfully nuanced version of that yeah um and not just like a hollywood like oh look we're all gay and we're doing you know like not just being like that i i feel like that was just um that's really great and really important and I feel yeah. like this really definitely uh, opened up a lot of doors for for queer cinema and queer uh, theater. So, yeah, I I love this and everybody should watch this movie. Agreed. Eric. So let's yes. let's move over to the um, 2020 version. Was this version new, interesting or the same? Was it progressive, regressive? How are you feeling? I think it was progressive just in terms of the way that they tried to acknowledge a little bit of the 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 racism and sort of the needless sort of like racial humor aspects uh, from the first one. But overall, I mean, it's like a little new, but overall exactly the same thing. I mean, different pacing, different way to tell the story visually, but it's nearly the exact same script. So I would say it's a little progressive, but also it is uh, the same. What do you think, Kay? How do you feel about it? Well, <laughs> I'm going to say it felt like, a passion project of Ryan Murphy's. Yes. And it felt as though they could have done more with it. And by more, I'm not actually sure what I mean, because mm. I am one of those people who gets pissed off if they change the 
like the original text too much so I, yeah. I would have been like unhappy either way but it does feel <laughs> like they could have just pushed it a little more and like if they were trying to m maybe bring a modern lens to the story they could have altered bits of it or done something a bit different as it is it feels like why bother yeah although 100%. that's not to say i didn't enjoy it i did enjoy it but it's also just like well what's the point yeah i yeah. i feel i get that too what do you what do you think jess How oh no i was gonna that? do that it's me who has to oh no you go okay sorry <laughs> what about you jess what do you reckon <laughs> excellent thank you thank you i'm so glad you asked Kay. <laughs> um yeah i i feel exactly like you do um i think largely it was the same text with like some different tonal aspects you know like and I'm not sure that it was changed enough to really bring, like you were saying, that modern lens to it. It did feel kind of like a fanboy movie for the original, which is great. But um, when, and this is something that Eric and I talk about in the pod a lot about, but when you are rebooting something or redoing something or doing a sequel 20 years later or something, you have an opportunity to, to elevate the story and to change certain things. And will people be pissed off about it? Sure. But like also you have this, um, I feel like there is kind of a duty to like do something because if you're just shot for shot making the same thing line for line with like you know the same people what's the point like why are mm. you why are you doing this like when like you have nothing to say that hasn't already been said so it really did feel like a passion project it was new in terms of like the way that they were like some of those uh vibe shifts right yeah <laughs> um but like by and large, it was it and and like I guess like some of the shooting techniques, but um, that also pulled me out of it. So like it and it felt like the ways that they were being progressive was great, but like it left me wanting something different than what I got. Yeah, I get that. And I think that that's what the first one did better, honestly. Yeah. <laughs> but counter argument: the first one had zero flaccid penises. That's true. Very and canonically true. on the pod, we are pro <laughs> pro soft wiener. So, you know, you give and take. Nobody's perfect. So having said that, Eric, um, who was this movie for? Oh, Ryan Murphy gays. Just Ryan Murphy gays. <laughs> 100%. Kay, who do you think this was for? Uh, the boffins at Netflix that paid too much money for Ryan Murphy to exclusively produce things for them. Jess, Ooh. who do you think this was for? <laughs> <laughs> um, I think this was a little bit more for straight people than the other one. I think, um, yes, it was a passion project. But I do feel like the ways that it centered Hank and Alan a little bit more felt like it was more of like a welcoming of like, hey, straight people watch this movie like let's yeah. talk about this like so so that's what i mean is it's like it was um to bring that audience in a little bit more i think mm -hmm. um but i mean it was still for ryan murphy eric did you like yes. it i did oh, yes. i like yes. i like the first one more but i did like it i like it i liked it enough uh, Kay, what do you think? Did you like it? <laughs> you know how we said before about indifference is worse than hate? Yeah. I liked it enough. Yeah. Um, uh, I mean, <laughs> it was, yeah, it was, I liked it enough. I, f I feel the same. I'm somewhere between whelmed and very into it. How yes, about you, Jess? I get that. 
yeah, it was fine. It was, it was <laughs> there. It was good. But like after having watched the first one, I'm like, I feel like just so many things worked better. And um, I was like, I was into like, okay, cool. Like, uh, let's do some. Uh, I thought the dance numbers were a little bit cuter. Um, I was like, cool, this is great. But like, overall, I was like, I don't know. It was good. It was fine. It was there, but it wasn't like just watch the first one. You don't need this. It was one. largely pointless. Yeah. 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 Totally. So. I think we've done it. We've gotten to the end of the episode. Kay, is there anything you want to plug um, while you're here for our gorgeous, gorgeous audience? Well, as you mentioned at the top of the show, I have a podcast called Lost Spaces, and it is about lost queer venues, but mostly it's about the people who got sucked off within them. And every week I talk to different people about their coming out journeys, how having access to the queer community has helped shape who they are and their journey. And I get their gossip from a part of their life that they thought that they'd forgotten. Um, and I might have a special guest coming up that your listeners will know already. Yes. Uh, you may hear me on that podcast at some point in the next few. Or oh, no, I if meant you're hearing this. If you're hearing this, you'll <laughs> probably be hearing me very soon. So you'll <laughs> go look, go look it up. It'll be out when this is out. Um, what a treat. I love doing the show. It's going to be great. Uh, Kay, thank you so much for being on the podcast with us. I know we talked ad nauseum about gayness, but what a joy. What a, what a treat. It was, it's been really fun. Yes. No. Yeah. It's been really fun for me. Thank you. Um, I've never watched the same film twice. <laughs> yes. <laughs> like so, so quickly after it. <laughs> Yeah, definitely. Uh, well, thank you again. We really appreciate you and your time. Also, yeah, uh, Lost Spaces, please check it out. It is wonderful and such a treat to listen to. Anyways, thank you so much, everybody, for listening. Please don't forget to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on all of our social media for those likes and those everything. We love attention, so please give us plenty of it. <laughs> we also do polls and stuff like that. So, like, I mean, if you want, if you have difference of opinion or if you want to make your opinion known, um, get at Let's us. argue. Let's do it. We love DM it. DM us. <laughs> Our artwork and music is by Eric Lefebvre. Editing is by Danny Barkley. And thank you again for listening. And thank you, Eric and Kay. Thank you, Jess thank and Kay. <laughs> and remember, I don't know why cute. I waved. <laughs> and stay critical. <laughs> Bye. This podcast has been brought to you by the Nostalgia Network. Visit the Nostalgianetwork.com for more. Avatar The Last Airbender is more than just a show. It's a conversation of growth. Of trauma. Of culture. Of intention. And of change. The Mamas and the Appas is a weekly conversational podcast from the Nostalgia Network dedicated to discussing the Avatar universe as folklore episode by episode. I'm Eric Lefebvre. I'm Dr. Amber Jones. And I'm Jessica Tercero. Join us weekly as we dig into all things Avatar and Korra, including Uncle Iroh's hot bod versus his war criminal history. Avatar Aang's well-meaning cultural revisionism versus Zuko's performance of toxic masculinity.
Tony. How ultimately Katara is the savior and the hero of the story. Find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, the Nostalgia Network.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.